This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. 20 years ago, 2001, four planes were hijacked from Dulles, Newark, and Boston Logan Airport. The hijackers flew the Dulles Airport aircraft into the Pentagon and the Newark Airport plane into a field in Pennsylvania. The two planes hijacked from Logan were flown into number one and number two World Trade Center in New York, causing the death of all souls on board and the collapse of those buildings that same day. The world witnessed the event with horror and disbelief over the scale of the acts that shone a light both on the ambitions of terrorists and the vulnerability of our transportation system. The sadness of the stunned public in the days and weeks that followed quickly turned to anger and a zeal to blame anyone possibly responsible for the tragedy. For many in the Boston press looking for a target, the fact that 10 of the hijackers were able to board planes in Logan that morning was proof positive that security errors had been made and someone needed to be held accountable. Leadership at Logan, still reeling from the tragedy, needed to ensure the airport was safe for future travelers, while also fending off critics looking for a face to blame. What would it have been like to be at the helm of Logan Airport on 9-11 and its aftermath? My guest today is Ginny Buckingham, former CEO of Logan International Airport and the author of the recently released book, On My Watch, A Memoir. Having been appointed as the first female in that role by Governor Salucci a year earlier, Ms. Buckingham faced the dual task of dealing with the tragedy of the loss to many local families, as well as the maelstrom of political and media criticism eager to blame someone for this epic tragedy. In her memoir, Ms. Buckingham recounts in great detail the events leading up to that unforgettable day and what it was like to have 9-11 occur on her watch. Ms. Buckingham will share with us the challenges of leadership in those moments and offer her unique insight on the lessons learned 20 years on. When I return, I'll be joined by author Ginny Buckingham. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now joined by presidential leadership scholar Virginia Buckingham and author of the recently released book, On My Watch, a memoir. Welcome to the show, Ginny. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you. Really an honor. I, I just read your book, and I will say it was profoundly moving. It was powerful. It was emotional. It was personal. It brought back mem- many memories now here uh, on the uh, 20th anniversary of 9-11. I'd like to start our conversation uh, by having you give us an overview of why you chose to write it now, uh, 19, 20 years later. You know, my book on my watch chronicles my job at Logan at the time and what we faced, kind of the unimaginable um, change brought to aviation and our world and how my team rose to the challenge. And then more so, it really chronicles my personal journey afterwards, because as those who were in Boston at the time remember, it quickly became a political finger pointing exercise as people tried to grapple with the enormity of what had happened. And I was forced to resign from Massport. And it took a big toll on me personally as I tried to grapple with could I have done anything 
something different. So I, I wrote the book over a 13-year period. And in fact, that Presidential Leadership Scholars Program, I was I'm so honored to be part of uh, my project was finishing the book and trying to extol its leadership lessons. Wonderful. I hope you got an A. It was, it was, a, it was a wonderful book. I, I really a page turner. Let's start with it at the beginning. Um, again, as a, a fellow Bostonian, someone who's been here for 25 years, um, uh, I shared a couple of the, uh, I enjoyed some of the lines in there where you fell in love with Boston at an early age. I also fell in love with Boston. I, I still live here and, and, and uh, am amazed by its beauty. Uh, share a little bit about your background, how you fell in love with Boston. You decided ultimately to go to school at Boston College. Uh, where did that all start? I grew up in rural Connecticut. I'm the seventh of eight children, the youngest girl. Um, my dad was a milkman and a hostess delivery truck delivery um, guy. And my mom um, was a stay-at-home mom and then a, a clerk at a hospital. And Boston was our big city. We were kind of straddling the line between New York and Boston. Most of my family growing up were Yankees fans, I will admit. Okay. All, right. <laughs> um, All right. It's good confession early on in the show. <laughs> Yes. Um, but Boston to me was where my mom took me, you know, on a bus trip um, to see Faneuil Hall when I was a little girl. And I was just awed by the city and by its beauty. And it just got a hold of my heart, I guess. And so when I had the chance at age 17 to apply to Boston College, um, I did. And no one in my family had gone to a school that big, even out of state. Um, but I was determined to go. And my mom helped me navigate the financial aid forms. And I got a few jobs on campus. And um, I've been a Bostonian ever since and a Red Sox fan. <laughs> Wonderful. OK, we got that out of the way. Um, you didn't just go to Boston College. During your time there, you actually jumped into what would ultimately become a, a career choice for you, politics. You, um, I believe, interned uh, for uh, then Governor Dukakis and uh, and since have have um, been in the offices, I suppose, of at least five Massachusetts governors, if I've count, kept count. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you evolved from intern to ultimately uh, chief of staff. You know, I didn't come from a political family. Um, I did grow up a Democrat and my father was a teamster. Mm -hmm. We did have a bust of JFK in our living room. My youngest brother is actually named after Ron, Robert, John and Edward Kennedy. So there, <laughs> there's yet another confession. Um, but I wasn't that interested in politics. I was interested in writing and I needed to get a work study job that paid um, and found one in the career center in the governor's press office and got on the green line and went into the state house and you applied for the job and got it. And I have to admit, I was bit by the bug very quickly because to be in that building and to be around um, a governor who was you know, making changes and leading the state, it was just um, intoxicating in a way. And um, I, from there, uh, got involved with the ballot campaign after I graduated from college. And then our organization, I worked for a trade organization, endorsed this very unlikely pair who were running for governor and lieutenant governor in 1990, Bill Weld and Paul Salucci. And no one thought they had a, a shot in hell of, of winning. A Republican hadn't been governor in 20 years here in Massachusetts. Um, and out of the blue, perhaps, or perhaps a little John Silver magic, um, mm -hmm. they won and went into the state house, and I went with them and um, began as an assistant press secretary, kind of back where I started as an intern and you know, did what my dad taught me, which is put my head down, work hard, and ultimately um, became press secretary. 
I ran Bill Weld's campaign against John Kerry in 1996, a loss, but a good campaign. Um, and then Bill Weld asked me to come back as his chief of staff. Paul Salucci asked me to stay on as his chief of staff, which ultimately led me to Massport. That's an impressive uh, rise from uh, intern to uh, uh, chief of staff. Um, so I want to shift then now to uh, you were also then uh, picked to lead Massport. Right. Um, and uh, it, it, it was astonishing if we do the math and I don't want to give away anyone's age, but you were a very young woman at that point, uh, leading a very large organization. I think in your book, you cite 1000 employees and that's not including the 1500 or so that work for the airlines. That's quite a step. Why, other than um, your uh, uh, fine work uh, for the governor, what, what were the qualities that think, you think made you qualified for that role? So back in um, 1999, there was a scandal at Massport. Um, the director got fired after um, being out on a booze cruise, basically in the middle of the day. And um, Governor Salucci felt very strongly that the culture at Massport needed to be changed. Um, he felt there needed to be reforms made. And most importantly, one of his top economic priorities was building a new runway to um, ease the delays at Logan, which were significant and a real burden on the economy. So he asked me to do it. I have to admit, I said no um, three times before I said <laughs> yes. Um, not because I didn't think I was qualified, but because I loved being chief of staff. I had just had my first baby. I just didn't want to change jobs. Um, but he um, kind of prevailed on me to to do it because he wanted me to go and um, he trusted me to do the reforms that were needed and to understand how to politically push for the runway. And I think that's an important thing people need to understand about that role at Massport. You know, I was not the director of aviation. I was not the director of the port. Those were, you know, transportation professionals who had been there for years. My job was to navigate the agenda of the authority including building a new runway, including improving passenger service, um, improving transportation options to get to the airport. Those are the types of things that required political skill. Um, and every director before me was a political appointee as well. And um, I was more than, than qualified. Of course, no one, whatever their background, could have been prepared for what happened um, in 2001. I liked in your book how you talked about the challenges of, of and and the world before it had suddenly changed. Uh, Massport was worried about uh, uh, assuaging the concerns of those very powerful political people in uh, East Boston and particularly in Southie. Um, you talk about your conversations with the late um, Congressman Joe Moakley. Um, so your your role was really to figure out how to make it happen, how to balance the needs of the airport and the greater community with the very powerful political interests uh, surrounding the airport itself. Yes. And I recognized that we were never going to win a local political battle. Those voices that you mentioned were very powerful and represented legitimate concerns of the neighborhoods, yet the concerns of the state of needing more capacity at Logan also had to be brought into play. So my, um, decision was to try to lift it out of local politics. And I formed a coalition with airports around the country, with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Um, we called it Runways, a coalition, and we made it an issue about um, national infrastructure. The Bush administration was fully supportive and we were making real progress. Ultimately, the runway did get approved after I left Logan, but I feel like lifting it out of that political morass was a really important step to get there. 
Okay, well, we've delayed the, the tough conversation long enough. Uh, you write with very, very great detail your morning coming in from your home in, on the North Shore, uh, even where you stop for coffee every moment uh, as, as the uh, 9-11 um, unfolded. Uh, you were arriving at, at your job uh, just, I believe, as the, after the first plane had hit the tower, trying to figure out which planes they were, where they had originated. Um, how is it that you remembered in such detail uh, every moment of that day? I don't think I'm alone in that. I think anyone, <laughs> whether they were in a position like mine or just a citizen watching on TV, remembers every detail of, of that morning. And the call I received from Logan Airport on my way into my office, I was supposed to fly to Washington that morning, said six words that changed the world forever, changed me forever. Two planes are off the radar. We didn't know that the two planes from Logan were hijacked at first. We didn't know they were the ones that were flown into the Twin Towers. What we did know is that they were missing. And that morning, the team at Logan and at Massport rose to the challenge of operationally shutting down the airport in minutes, securing every single plane on the ground, emptying thousands of passengers out of the terminals, forming an assistance center so families who we knew would come to the airport looking for in information and support could have some place to go with clergy and, and others there to, to just help them in their most desperate, terrible hour. And we focused and delivered what we felt was the right and only response to something horribly unimaginable. And I'm very proud of the work my team did. Unfortunately, the story in Boston didn't stay on that. It quickly turned to why and how. And I think people were incredibly angry and afraid. And very quickly, they looked for answers um, sure. in me. So um, again, you are, a, uh, I don't know if you call yourself a, a, a communications expert, um, but someone who really understands that, uh, um, uh, how a, a, an issue is framed, uh, and how, uh, uh, messages evolve. Um, were you truly blindsided by the fact that despite your earnest attempt to lead Massport and, uh, in a sense, didn't have the wisdom of hindsight, were you blindsided by the fact that it, the conversation and it, you chronicle it very well in your book quickly went from what happened to who can we blame? Um, and this is a natural human response to say, I, I've been hurt deeply. I, I want retribution or, or blame or well, however you want to characterize it. Wouldn't someone like you, particularly you, have seen that coming? And, and, and in your book, clearly you were blindsided and surprised, but it surprised me that you were surprised. You're such a, a wise um, uh, person when it comes to uh, politics. Why do you think you were blindsided by this? It was an attack on our country. It was an event that changed the entire world. It happened at three other airports at exactly the same time. So to me, at first, I assumed wrongly that that would be the perspective of the political leadership in Boston, as well as the media. And it quickly got disabused of that um, notion. Um, by 48 hours later, there was a quote from um, the acting governor at the time saying planes um, were hijacked from Logan. So clearly there's a problem and a source saying I might be fired as a result. And to be honest, I just dismissed it because 
yes, I do understand how politics works. I was a pr- practitioner. I figured it would blow over in that the, uh, the perspective would be um, obvious that this was a, a worldwide problem and a secure, a national security problem, not a Logan problem. Um, and I kept focused because we had a job to do and I didn't want my team distracted by the media nonsense. I wasn't going to let myself get distracted. Um, however, it didn't get better. It got worse. Um, fed by kind of the typical political playbook being rolled out. And by, I think, this feeling of, yes, it happened here. These planes left from here. I'm so scared and so angry. I need to place that feeling somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I was a convenient target. Now you speak a, a great deal about your uh, strong religious and cultural connection to being a Catholic. How do you think you, you, your uh, faith guided you through this? Was it a strength? Was it, a, in a sense, a Achilles heel? Um, how, how do you think that colored your reaction? My faith was the most important thing to me for my entire life. And I felt a very deep personal connection to God through the Catholic church, but just also through Boston college, just in my, in my heart. And I could not reconcile that the God I believed in the God that answered prayers, the God that opened doors uh, or, or closed windows when it, when a door was opened could stand by and let this happen. And I, my, my faith was, was gone. It was gone the morning of nine 11 and I didn't get it back for many, many years. And I only got it back with an understanding that God didn't stand by, that God cried too when terrorists took over those planes and killed all those people. And to, to have a understanding of that kind of God um, who's um, not controlling the journey um, helps me enormously um, to understand the, the role of my faith now. It was clear from your book that um, as harsh as critics were on you, and I think that, you know, we could both agree they were un- unfair and unkind, you seem to be more dip- uh, harsh on yourself, despite your hard work, despite not having the wisdom of hindsight, and despite your careful analysis of everything you could have done, it seemed that you still, in this book, it comes through loud and clear, you still wondered through all of it, could you have done something else? Would you attribute that sense of, uh, guilt to your faith? Or do you think all of us, when we are in the room, when things go wrong, I'm, I'm a veteran and, and the de- definition of guilt to, a, to a, in the military is something went wrong, went wrong and you were in the room. Do you think um, your faith though was a, an Achilles heel that you felt so guilty? We, we hear of leaders who don't feel guilt when things go wrong <laughs> every day, unfortunately. Uh, you, you were the opposite. You, you couldn't have seen this coming and yet you seem to be uh, um, really tearing yourself apart in your book. Why, why do you think that is? I mean, I don't know if it can be attributed to my faith background. I think true leaders have accountability in their own conscience. And I certainly listened to the voices of blame and took that to heart and did question myself for a long, long time about whether there was anything I could have done. Um, I also think that ultimately you have to examine your conscience and listen to your own voice and see the truth. So ultimately I understand that I could not have changed a thing that day, but part of my journey was wrestling with the question as a leader. I think that's, you know, it's a hard, hard thing to do, but I don't think it's a wrong thing to do. 
ultimately, uh, again, your um, your book talks about the 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 weeks and months after 9-11 and how you did try to separate and isolate the events of 9-11 from your own personal life. Uh, and clearly it was a struggle, almost into madness. And if you'll allow me to you know, characterize it that way um, and you survived. Um, what do you think uh, it was that helped you get through all of this? You mentioned frequently uh, your strong family relationships, your friends. Uh, how did you um, bring that all to bear? Was it a, uh, you talk about happenstance running into people accidentally. Um, you know, did did you actively try to hang on and, and and pull in allies, or was it just sort of you were wandering through the the fog, hoping that you'd be rescued? Yeah. Well, first of all, good question at the end there. I did hope to be rescued the entire twenty years, practically, by the president of the United States, by the media um, changing their mind and exonerating me. And it wasn't until I realized none of that was going to matter unless I believed in my own heart and soul that I was not to blame. Um, and ultimately I recognize being your own hero is just that you don't wait for someone else to rescue you. I would say two things. One being a parent, I'm fortunate that I had two little kids at the time and they needed a good mom. And I was determined to be that for them. Secondly, the kindness and compassion of perfect strangers um, was critical, including 9-11 families who went out of their way to reach out to me and show me such grace that I still to this day can't fathom where they found the strength to do that. And it's something I try to pay forward because it saved me. So a lesson there is uh, when when leaders are going through terrible times, it's it's important that those who see that, that uh, pain uh, reach out, even if they're strangers, and say, look, this is... Uh, yeah, you stay strong. Uh, you'll get through this. And I think it's important to recognize as citizens that leaders are people. They're human beings. And yes, make mistakes and, and certainly need to be held to account if that's appropriate. But also to recognize that they're feeling the enormity of what is going on just as much as anyone else. And they have the added burden of trying to fix it. Um, and I think about that with COVID and I think we're very much in, in the mode of blame in, in this country with COVID and not really seeing that the, you know, the governors who are doing it well or doing it not so well are human beings trying to do the best they can. And why don't we try to support them as opposed to blame them? Yes. Blame certainly is, is an easy thing, particularly now in, it's hard to believe 20 years ago, we didn't have the internet. Now we can not just blame, but we can blame anonymously. Now, speaking of blame, I want to shift the conversation. Uh, much of your book are just simple quotes from uh, the Herald, from uh, um, the Globe, from um, Patriot Ledger, uh, all being very, very, very harsh. Ironically, after you were asked to resign from Massport, you later, your next job was as a writer for one of those very papers, for the Herald. It just seemed to me the least likely uh, career choice after what you had just been through. I mean, you're essentially um, walking into the belly of the beast that had done had been so uh, uh, savage to you. Uh, what made you think that was the right next step? Well, two things. First, I'm a writer wannabe back then. I would always <laughs> wanted to be a, a professional writer. So um, for that reason, I, I pitched myself out to the Globe and the Herald. The Globe didn't say yes, the Herald did. Um, <laughs> okay. And despite what happened, I'm a big believer in the power of media to do good and to be an ally for change. That was what I learned um, working for two governors that radically changed the public policy of this 
state Mm -hmm. in so many areas. And we did it by shining a media spotlight on the issues. And so I'm a believer in the power of media to do good. And for that reason, I wanted to be part of it, still trying to shape policy um, from the other side of the pen. I, I'll be honest. I, I've recently finished the book, and I really felt I felt drained as um, you know a fellow Bostonian who had many connections to folks on the plains and the towers, and brought back many painful memories for me. Was it painful to write this book, and, or was it cathartic to to revisit all these painful memories? It certainly helps to put words around those memories and to make meaning with them. But you know, writers don't write for themselves. Typically, they write for others. And so my hope was by putting words and meaning around my experience, it might resonate with others in a totally different context who are going through their own painful journey in, in whatever way. And to know that there's a different way of looking at resilience, um, which is another big theme of my book um, that we can talk a little bit about um, to understand the role of blame. And hopefully in some small way, maybe I can help change that that way of, of thinking. So you know, to do good with something bad is really all you can do um, when something happens um, that you have no control over. And that's what I tried to do. I like the metaphor you use of, of sea glass. You talk about uh, it's a bottle that's been thrown in the ocean and, and tossed about and it changes and it becomes something else, something better, perhaps something more beautiful. Um, you, you were the proverbial sea glass. Um, what lessons uh, for leaders uh, do you think are most salient in, in your book and in your own experience? What would you like leaders to know from your own experience of this, this terrible event happening? I would say leadership is not blaming. And if you're in a position of leadership, whether it's an elected position or the head of a corporation or the principal at a school, at whatever level, when a problem arises, look for solutions and don't look to blame and push it aside. So that that to me is the most important lesson. And if I could speak to any organization, any group in my kind of dream, I would be in front of the National Governors Association um, talking to 50 governors and telling them, I know what your job is. I serve by governor's sides, but don't blame when problems arise. Um, th- th- that's wonderful advice. When we talk about blame, again, in your book, you seem in many ways to blame yourself or want to blame yourself uh, for anything you might have done wrong. H- have you, in this struggle, have you found forgiveness for yourself? In other words, do you no longer blame yourself? Uh, I don't know if that's an odd question, but um, it seems one has to forgive oneself before anyone. Uh, have you done that? What I realized is I don't have anything to forgive myself for, which I think is just as important. And, you know, I carry a lot of shame, I guess, around how long it took me to come to that understanding. Um, but it took what it took. And I guess I accept that the journey I I was on was going to unfold in the way that it did. You know, I was sued personally for wrongful death um, by a family. And I think that most of all was what shattered my sense of self and my sense of hope and my sense of belief um, that I did nothing wrong because to be held accountable like that um, in a court of law, um, the case was withdrawn and all the cases against Logan were dismissed and the 9-11 commission found Logan's security was no different. But that that blame being placed so personally on my shoulders was very, very hard to handle. 
Um, but I learned I didn't have to forgive myself because I didn't do anything wrong. And I would have done anything to change what happened that day if that was at all humanly possible. So you've distinguished yourself as, as a leader. Uh, you've been through uh, some uh, a terrible gauntlet. Um, most of our listeners aren't leaders. Many are just uh, uh, followers. What can organizations and individuals within uh, organizations, uh, be they government or, or private companies, when their organization is under attack, when their leaders are under attack, what can members of organizations do to um, uh, help stay the course and help uh, support their leaders in these times of trouble? Uh, of course, I, I'm gonna guess you're gonna say, first, don't criticize, but I'd say, how, how can one reasonably support one's leader when, when a terrible uh, event like this happens? I think keep doing your job. I think that's the most important thing you can do is focus, deliver on what you're meant to deliver on. And of course, be a kind, supportive, you know, colleague if, as, as you are, um, but do your job. And um, I think that helps the organization move forward and it helps the leader continue to do what they need to do. As a citizen, I would say, yeah, stop the nasty comments. You know, it's so easy to get on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all the rest and shoot out a nasty um, comment about any given person, any given leader, what's the point? You know, wh- how does that help anything? And, you know, I think if we did a little less of that, it would be a, a much better place. Indeed. Uh, I was moved by uh, after, um, I think it was, you had written a column for the Globe or in the Globe magazine, and someone uh, shared with you all the letters that have been written to the editor, some harsh, uh, but many, many very, uh, very kind words. Uh, one uh, as they say now, don't read the comments. Um, but some actually are, are can help fortify you, I suppose, uh, and bring you strength. And we're getting close to uh, the end of our time together. Um, for those listeners who um, want to read your book and, or find more work and find what you're up to, or even reach out and communicate with you and, and, and relate uh, their own stories of support, how can our listeners connect with you, find you, uh, reach out to you, communicate with you? So they can order my book um, through any bookstore. Any bookstore can can order it or on Amazon, um, which bookstores hate. So, so <laughs> okay. go, go, go to a local bookstore if you can. All right. Um, probably LinkedIn. Um, I imagine a lot of your listeners are on LinkedIn and mm-hmm. as am I. And I'm happy to connect. And, um, you know, I'm making um, some choices about what my next journey is going to be um, now that the book is out and the 20th anniversary is here. and um, I'm looking at that as an opportunity because I think the road's not straight for any of us, right? We thought it was back when we were young, um, but sure. we the road's not straight and I'm excited for the future. Well, um, I have to say, I, I will recommend to our listeners your book. It's a page turner. I couldn't put it down. Uh, brings back painful memories. So uh, you might need a, a stiff drink afterwards or something like that, but uh, it was a very, very, very good book. And I, I do appreciate you sharing what I, I'm I'm sure are very still very painful memories um, and a very powerful account of uh, what went on uh, nearly to the day 20 years ago. So thank you for joining Hubwonk. I really appreciate your time today, Jenny. Thanks for having me, Joe. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support Hubwonk. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. If you want to make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, it would help if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. Of course, we're always grateful if you want to share us with friends. 
If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for future episode topics, you're welcome to reach out to me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Thank you.